y'all. I'm so glad to be back together with y'all again this year, uh, 2024. I have to tell you, she's talking about kind of the struggle is real and everything that people are going through. And I am in recovering from a cold. So my voice um, earlier in the week was almost completely gone. It's a little bit um, back now, but if you notice, it sounds a little froggy. That's, that's why I'm trying to recover. But it's good to see y'all and be back together again. So I don't know if you know this about me or not, <clears throat> but I do not like scary movies. I don't like scary movies at all, except for the movie Scream. For whatever reason, that I will watch. It's kind of nostalgic for me, so that's one exception. But in general, I do not like scary movies. And, but, you know, when you're a kid, it's hard to avoid scary movies because there will always be that one kid in your class who has seen all of the scary movies and is willing to tell any kid that will listen every detail about every scary movie. So I had a friend like that, this boy in my class, we were maybe in second or third grade, and he would tell us all about the movies, the scary movies that he had seen. And he had seen them all. He would tell us about the Jason movies and the Freddy Krueger movies and um, the Chucky movies, all of those. And because it's something that I didn't grow up with, uh, I would sit and I would listen because I'm like, this is something my parents will let me watch, so I want to hear all the details. And, of course, I would listen and then get appropriately freaked out because, you know, I I, that's why my parents wouldn't let me watch it. Well, one day I was watching TV and I saw a preview for one of the Freddy Krueger movies come on the screen. So now I had a face to go with those stories that my friend had told me about. And so those stories and that image turned into a fear of Freddy Krueger. And I couldn't really separate fact from fiction at that age. And so I was pretty terrified of him. And so in my bedroom, uh, I had this closet door that wouldn't shut all the way. I know. <laughs> it, would, it had this little crack, and it wouldn't shut all the way. And so at nighttime, you know, it's dark in my bedroom, but you can see a little bit of light coming through the blinds from outside or the alarm clock, but there would be this crack. And in this crack, it was the darkest spot in my entire room. And I thought that that's where Freddy Krueger lived that he lived in my closet. And I would be focused on that crack. And it wouldn't matter how many times I turned on the light and looked in the closet, because as soon as I turned the light back off, it's like, he's back, he's back in the closet. And I would pull the covers up and, you know, pull them over my face because I would be worried that he was gonna get me, because you know, if you're under the covers, like nobody can get you. Um, <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to admit that this went on longer than it should, but, um, Every time I turned on the lights, the darkness would go away, and I would feel safe. I would feel safe, I would feel secure, and it would feel like everything was okay. Now, eventually, um, my fear of the darkness went away. Um, as I grew up, I, you know, stopped believing that Freddy Krueger lived in my closet, but I never stopped loving the light. That's one thing I still love. I don't sleep with the nightlight, but I love the pre-dawn moments when the sun just begins coming through the windows. Uh, Sissy mentioned that I have three kids and we go on a lot of road trips. And uh, when we drive out east, 
Sometimes we'll wake up before it's light outside. And as we're driving east, you can see the sun begin to rise. And I love that moment because the darkness is behind you and you're driving toward the light. I love the long days of summer when the sun doesn't set until 8 or 9 p.m. I love the warmth that the light brings. I love the freedom that it brings because when it's light outside, you can wander, you can explore for longer. The light makes us feel safe and secure. So when John talks about light in 1 John chapter one, chapter 1, it gets me excited. I'm ready for the motif, ready for the theme. And when he says that God is light in verse 5, I agree wholeheartedly. Because God is all those things that I just, just described. He is warm. He, is, uh, he gives us freedom. He is safety. He is security. He causes the darkness to leave, and I love that. And so I knew immediately when I looked at the chapter that I was going to teach on, I knew immediately that I was going to teach on light and darkness today. This theme resonates deeply with me, and I assume from the nods that I've seen that it resonates deeply with you. We understand light and darkness. We understand the contrast, and it's a simple illustration. It's an easy illustration to use when you talk about the presence of God. What I didn't realize immediately, what I didn't fully understand, is the way that the light connects with God's holiness. See, God is holy. And what it means to be holy is that he is set apart. He is sinless and he is light. There is no sin in him at all. And when his light shines on everything, when it shines on us, it reveals things that are not light. The darkness, it reveals the things that are not holy, our sin. And what is holy and what is sinful cannot share the same space, just in much the same way that the light and the darkness cannot share the same space. One must win. And we know that God will win, right? He is all-powerful. And so his light will drive out the darkness. We also know, but maybe we hesitate to admit, that because of our sin, that we are driven out with that darkness. That our sin separates us from God's presence. And so now at this point, the light doesn't feel quite as warm. The light doesn't feel maybe quite as safe. And the truth that the light reveals our sin might cause us to want to run and hide. It might actually cause us to want to remain in the darkness. It might cause us to pretend that we have no sin, to deny that we have any sin. Because acknowledging that we have sin means acknowledging that we have done something wrong. That we have done something that separates us from God it's hard to think about the way that our sin, the way our behavior, the way our choices separate us from God. Thankfully, thankfully, we don't have to sit with it for long. Because thankfully, the same God that we are separated from made a way for us to walk in the light with him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on our sin. He took on our sin and he paid the penalty for us, so that we could be reunited with him. 
So the light is not a spotlight of condemnation on us. The light is a light of revelation, revealing our sin, showing us places where we fall short so that Jesus might come in and redeem those areas. He might come in and bring those dark places into the light. So tonight, we're going to spend some time looking at 1 John and the image of light and dark. And hopefully, we're going to walk away with a better understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them now to 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. So verse 5 is going to be a key verse for us for this section. I'll repeat it again and again. Y'all are probably going to get tired of me repeating it, but I'm telling you now, I'm going to repeat it again and again because it is a key verse. It's important, and it helps us understand uh, the verses that come before and the verses that follow after. So 1 John 1, 5 says, Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So the first thing you probably notice is that when I um, put this verse up, it has the word now in front of it. A lot of translations don't include that word now, but the, the translation that I chose to use tonight has that little word in the primary spot. Some of these translations that have that little word are just a little bit closer to the original language, but I liked it because of the reason I'm about to share with you. So in context, the first part of 1 John is the setup. It's the background. It's what I'm even going to call a reminder, okay? Verses 1 through 4 are the details that John gives us about what's already happened, what the reader should already know. Remember that John is writing to uh, the next generation of Christ followers, these new Christians who are in these house churches in Ephesus. So these are believers, though, who have heard some things and who are doing some things that are starting to concern John. So he writes this letter, and he begins the letter by reminding them of what they know. So to summarize, it's like he's saying, remember what we've heard. Remember what we've heard from the beginning, the stories, the prophecy, what we've looked upon and touched concerning the word of life. So he's talking about the apostles' experience with Jesus. And so he says, um, his life, meaning Jesus, his life was made plain to us. Who he was was made plain to us. His identity as the Savior was made plain to us. We saw it. We testified to you about it, and we proclaimed this gospel message to you. This is what we told you. This is what they told to the new believers in Ephesus. And that message brings us all into community with one another. It creates a new community of Christ's followers, and it brings us into community with God, and so we're sharing this message with you again, writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. And so when John finishes saying all of that, you should be asking yourself, well, what's the message? What is the message that they're testifying about that was made plain to them that they are sharing again? And it's as if, or like I like to think, that it's as if John takes a deep breath and then he says the word 
now. It's like he leans in and he says, now, this is the message. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. This is the message. So if we pause right there, some of you might be thinking, you might've read that and you're like, okay, that's the message. What does that even mean? Is that something to proclaim? God is light. And I think we might think that because we're thinking, you know, you flip on a switch and there's the light. And like, why is that a message to proclaim? But you have to think about it differently. We're not talking about just an image. We're talking about an attribute of God. Not God is like the light. God is light. He is the one who reveals all things. There is no one in the entire universe that can do what he can do. No one else who is like him. He is set apart. He is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. He is light. And because he is light, there is no darkness in him. Because darkness and light cannot coexist. What is holy and pure cannot share the same space as what is evil and sinful. I wrote um, in the space in the back at the end of the chapter, you know, that little fill in the blank spot. I wrote in there, knowing that God is light shows me that I am sinful. I started kind of saying this phrase um, every now and then that the more we know about God, the more we understand ourselves. I believe that as we grow in our knowledge of who God is, we begin to understand who we are better. And we can only really know ourselves well if we know God well. And so knowing that God is light, that he is pure, holy, and set apart without sin shows me how sinful I am. All of a sudden, I see now this gap that lies between us. And no matter how hard I try not to sin, and sometimes I try really hard, but then there are times also where I don't try that hard. Sometimes I want to sin. Sometimes I choose to do what's wrong. Either way, that gap exists. But sometimes that gap is glaringly wide, so wide it feels impossible to close. Knowing that God is light and there's no darkness in him means that we, as followers of Jesus, people who have seen, who have heard, who know about him, that we have to consider what it means to be in relationship with him. Can we, can we, people who are sinful, can we be in relationship with a God who is holy? Is it possible? If he is light and he is sinless and we have sin, can we actually be in relationship with him? Well, I think that John understands that line of thinking. I think he understands that that thinking would flow from that message. And so he presents us with six if statements or clauses. Three of these statements begin with the words, if we say, and they're negative statements that these new Christ followers are now saying. These people loved Jesus, but they didn't really understand who he was. They didn't understand that knowing that God is light requires them to think differently about themselves and about their behaviors, about their lifestyle. So John addresses each of those statements 
with three more if statements to help correct their theology or their knowledge of who God is and their understanding of themselves and their own sin. So let's look at these statements. So in verse six, it says, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So remember the message, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So first John addresses their relationship with God. He's speaking to these early Christ followers who've heard from the eyewitnesses the message of Jesus and believed that gospel message. He acknowledges that they would say they have fellowship with God. They would say, well, yeah, we've believed the message. We're in, we're a part of this new community, yet they walk in darkness. And so he uses three active verbs, walk, lie, and practice. Walking in the darkness means that they are not walking in the light because light and dark cannot coexist. And it means that they are continuing to persist in the behavior that they had before they knew Jesus. They're still living in a way that's contrary to God. And not only that, they are um, living in that way. They are walking in that way. They are actively persisting in it, not trying to change. And so because of this, they cannot claim to have fellowship with God. So they have to be lying or deceived because again, light and darkness cannot coexist. So therefore they cannot practice the truth because they can't share the the news of who God is because they don't really understand what it means to walk in the light because they are continuing to walk in darkness. So they can't proclaim it to others because they don't understand it or practice it. So John corrects their thinking in verse seven, and he says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he uses the active walk again. If we walk with God, if we walk and follow his example, if the example of Jesus, if we walk in the light, it opens the door for us to be cleansed of all of our sin and then enjoy fellowship with him. And not just fellowship with him, fellowship with each other. So in verse six, John didn't make it explicit when he was talking about darkness, that that means sin. But in verse seven, he does. He's like walking in the darkness is sinful. And that's, um, that's what he is talking about. It's about our sinful habits that separate us from God. So it's important for him then in verse seven to talk about the way that Jesus's blood cleanses us from all sin and makes it possible for us to walk in the light and to have real relationships with others, to continue building this new community of Christ followers. So verse eight continues the pattern with another negative statement. It says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, the message is God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So this time John directly addresses their claim that they can say they have no sin because I imagine that some of these early believers might be walking around thinking that now that they have believed this message about Jesus, that they have no sin, that they are sinless. 
But again, John says we are deceiving ourselves because if we believe in Jesus, we should know that we are not like him, right? That we have sin, that we are not like God. And sin is something that we will always struggle with. And so he's reminding these new believers that you will always struggle with sin and that God is light and he is the only one who can say that he has no sin. We are not God and we cannot make that claim. And so if we do, we again deceive ourselves and we make ourselves liars and do not understand the truth that God is light. So John offers another correction in verse 9 by saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we acknowledge and admit our sinfulness, there is a way out from under it. God will forgive us. And not only will God forgive us, but he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believers will struggle with sin. That's a guarantee. This side of heaven, we will struggle with sin. And acknowledging that that separation exists and asking God to forgive us closes that gap. And God is faithful. He will forgive us. His light will reveal our sin in our lives. And we um, need to cultivate a habit of bringing that sin to him again and again a rhythm of confession. Because as we continue walking in the light, that light will reveal more and more of our sin. And when we see it, we just take it to the Lord each and every time. And he is faithful to forgive us each and every time. So then verse 10 is the last, if we say, statement. And it says, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this final statement is really similar. It sounds very similar to verse eight, but there is a subtle difference. So this statement is claiming that this person says they've never sinned, ever, that they are sinless, just like God. And so this is not only wrong, this is blasphemous because they're, they're claiming to be just like God. And so it makes God a liar, because if they're claiming to be sinless, just like God, then how can God claim to be the only one? How can he claim to be set apart and holy if they're just like him? So it makes God a liar. And, and, it, and it, it emphasizes the fact that they don't really understand who he is, that they haven't actually believed him that they don't really understand that God is light and that there's no darkness in him, that God is sinless and we are not. And so John, his correction to that is found in the next chapter, in chapter two, in those first two verses. And so John says, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. He begins gently 
with a term of endearment, my little children. It's not condescending. He's not talking down to them. He actually is addressing them that way because he cares for them. He's overseeing these churches. He's overseeing their spiritual growth. And so he loves and cares for them. And he wants to remind them of the truth. And so he's harsh with his words because he cares about them. He wants them to have a correct view of God and not continue believing these things that are not true. And so John is telling them these things so they won't continue sinning, so they won't continue walking in the darkness and deceiving themselves. He wants them to live in the light away from sin. But he also knows that it's not possible for them to not sin. He understands that they will sin, that they will at times fail. And so he wants them to know that when you do sin, come before the Lord. Bring your sin to the Lord. He, he is your advocate, that Jesus is your advocate. There is someone pleading your case for you. Jesus, the righteous one, is the one who is blameless, and he is the one who has paid the, the penalty for your sin. He is the one who can close the gap. He is the one that bears the weight of our sin. He is the sacrifice that we need so that we can have true fellowship with the Lord again. But he doesn't just bear the weight of their sin. Jesus bears the weight of our sin. He bears the weight of the sin, the sin of the entire world. John has spent this entire chapter helping us understand the implications for believing the message that God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And if we believe this message, if we agree that God is light and there is no darkness in him, and if we desire a relationship with him, then there are a few things that we need to do. We need to recognize that we have sin that it separates us from God. We need to confess our sin and bring it before the Lord. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to receive the gift of forgiveness that cleanses us from all sin. And then we need to walk in the light. We need to change our behavior so that it looks like his. We need to walk in the light. I'm going to tell you guys um, a little story, an example of how this played out in my own life. Um, and I think some of the young adults may have heard this story, but I'm not sure. But um, I, when I first walked onto the campus at Dallas Seminary, I went there for a job. I was not interested in being a student. I was happy to be in a Christian environment. I knew and believed um, in Jesus, but I just wasn't interested in any of the courses they had to offer there. And if I'm honest, I wasn't just not interested. I actually thought much of it was pretentious. Um, I thought all these theology classes with names like soteriology and eschatology and Trinitarianism, I thought it sounded a bit overinflated. And I had grown up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. Um, I knew a lot about Jesus. And I honestly thought that there wasn't really much else I needed to learn. Um, I wouldn't have said that I was without sin, but I was pretty prideful. 
pretty confident that I understood everything that there was to know about Jesus. And um, so I thought seminary had very little to offer. And I made enough snide comments about seminary that finally my boss's wife, who I worked alongside, had had enough. She was like done with me. And she said, you should take one class. Just take one class. And um, she said, take one theology class. And because I was a full-time employee, I could take a class for free. And she even said that I could take this class during work hours. And I was like, okay, bet, I'll do that. Um, And so (laughs) she said that the class that I should take um, should be soteriology. And that was one of those big word classes. And it was actually one of the classes that I complained about the most. Because soteriology, I would say, why do they call it soteriology? I mean, why can't they just say salvation? What they're talking about is salvation. So why not just call it salvation class? Why do we have to have this big word? And I would say, and then what are they talking about for an entire semester about salvation? I mean, how can you fill a semester with this kind of information? And she was so patient with my arrogance So I signed up for this class, and um, I bought these really expensive books, and uh, the primary book was titled Humanity and Sin. And so I went to class, and that first day, I I sat in class, and I listened to the professor talk about Jesus and talk about his sacrifice, the sacrifice he made for all of us, talk about the, the penalty, the cost, what it did, what he secured for us, the gift that it was. And I sat there embarrassed and with my mouth hanging open, just in shock at what I was hearing. And so as soon as the class was done, I ran back to my office, went straight to my boss and his wife, and I was like, I don't even know if I'm saved. Like, I don't, like, why has nobody told me anything? Like, no one's told me any of this about Jesus. Why are they keeping this from me? I was completely changed. And so my boss and his wife, they kind of laughed at me, but they met with me every day or every time that I took that class. When that class was finished, I would go straight to their office and they would talk with me about all the things that I learned and help me to understand what I was learning in that class. That class was pivotal in my walk with the Lord. And I'm not saying that everyone has to take a seminary class in order to, you know, uh, improve their walk with the Lord or to experience God. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that I needed that class. I thought I knew everything there was to know about God. And so I needed to sit in that class and have, light, have Jesus shine his light of truth in my life, on my pride and on my arrogance. That class humbled me, and it opened the door for God to do a new work in my life, and it changed me completely. My boss, um, the man that I was uh, just telling you guys about, passed away last week, and we attended his funeral, and as I sat there, I just thought through these memories of him and his wife, and I just was thanking the Lord for his ministry. He wasn't just a boss. He discipled me through life and helped grow my faith in a way that was just life-changing. And because of them, I learned more about God than I ever thought that I could. 
and it changed the way I saw God and it shaped the way that I saw myself. John wanted these new uh, first century believers, he wanted these new Christians to know and understand the holiness of God. He wanted them to know that God is light and there's no darkness in him. The darkness wants to keep us in fear. It wants to keep us prideful. It wants to make us believe that we're not so different from God, that we can be just like him. But knowing that God is light means that he will overcome the darkness. He will reveal our sin, reveal our pride, uncover our fears, and we will have to come face to face with them. And when that happens, what will we do? What will you do? Will you continue to walk in the dark even though you see the light? Will you recognize your sin? Will you take your sin and own it and confess it and bring it before the Lord? Do you believe that he will forgive you? Because he will. He will forgive you. He wants you to walk in the light. He makes it possible through the gift of his son, Jesus, for you to be able to walk in the light. So let's do that. Let's walk in the light together, following his example. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you, Lord, just for who you are, God, that you are light and that you shine your light into each of our lives, revealing those dark places. God, and I thank you that you are faithful and merciful and just to forgive us of all of our sins, that you do not condemn us or shame us, but you invite us to bring our sin to you so that you might cleanse us. And so I thank you and praise you for that, God. I pray, Lord, for these women that if they are struggling with walking in the light, if they are fearful of what they might bring to you, God, may you remind them that you love them, that you love us so much that you sent your son to bear the weight of our sin. And so there is nothing that we can do now to separate ourselves from you. And so God, may you remind us how loved we are, how safe we are with you. And God, may you draw us near to you and enable us to walk in the light. Give us the ability and the perseverance to continue walking in the light. I thank you again for tonight and for these women who've made the sacrifice to come and study your word. I thank you for your word, Lord, that it reveals so much of who you are to us. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Remember, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So let's walk in the light together.